This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director at the Hendricks Center and also Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies here at Dallas Theological Seminary. And my guests are John Hanna to my left and Michael Spiegel to my right. And our topic is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. <laughs> and one of the very unusual things about this Table podcast is that Dr. Hanna as he is affectionately known, uh, it has been on our faculty longer than I have. I'm in my 35th year here at the seminary, and he is uh, in his 45th year yeah. here at the seminary. And so, Mike, how long have you been at the seminary? <clears throat> Not that long. <laughs> Almost 10. Almost 10 years. So, and, and they both teach in theological studies. Now, that was two departments when I was a student here. There was historical theology and, and systematics. And that's now been combined, and John is a former chairman of the Historical Theology Department. They folded into theological studies. And these two gentlemen know a lot about the Reformation, know a lot about history and theology, so we've invited them in to help us um, think about and to some degree celebrate um, 500 years of Protestantism. So John, to start with you, how did you get interested in historical theology? Uh, what, what spurred you in that direction? I think principally, Daryl, you, you follow people who impress you. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a mentor um, who deeply loved the Lord and uh, had a passion for the gospel and people. And um, I wanted to be like him to some degree. And so uh, I'm really interested in people how they process knowledge, how they make decisions, why they make decisions. So it fit. I mean, it fit my discipline. And this was Ted Dibler who was this. Yeah, Dr. Yeah, Ted Dibler. Right. I met him when I was 17. Mm -hmm. He gave me his job at 37. Mm. I buried him when he was 57. Mm -hmm. So we had 40 years mm -hmm. in the wilderness together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Dear, dear man, I, I had historical theology from him. and. Really uh, treasured uh, his, <laughs> including his singing. Yes. <laughs> so uh, um, used to open class with a hymn. Mm -hmm. uh, Mike, how about you? How did you get an interest in in theological studies? Yeah, that was great. I um, I had always an interest in both systematic as well as historical theology, and and eventually ended up primarily in early Christian uh, Christianity, the patristic period. Um, but uh, I had, uh, as you did, Dr. Hanna, as a, as a professor, and uh, he made history look fun. And it was uh, really sparked my interest. I never really thought of myself teaching those classes, but uh, kind of followed in, in those footsteps. Okay. Well, we're going to turn our attention now to certainly one of the most significant uh, events in the history of the Christian Church, the Reformation. And rumor has it that uh, – one day back in, I guess, 1517, if I do my mm -hmm. math right. October 31st. October 31st, to be exact. You know what time that was? Cent uh, central time? No, just kidding. And, uh, <laughs> Daylight savings. <laughs> Daylight savings. Uh, uh, 
I won't go there. Um, that uh, 95 theses got nailed to a door in Wittenberg. We've we've all been to Wittenberg. We've seen that church. We've seen the uh, a memorial, really, that's dedicated to those 95 theses, etc. Yeah, Wittenberg is a fascinating place today to visit. Um, and so, what in the world possessed Martin Luther to do that and go against the Catholic Church? Yeah, he. It was a the rumor. I'm, I'm, it's interesting that you mention it that way. There are some scholars disputing whether the moment of nailing these theses actually occurred or whether that's myth. But um, clearly, the 95 theses were the thing that was the spark that kind of started the controversy, and it was Martin Luther. Uh, basically proposing some topics for disputation, really, mm-hmm. the, the – Kind of like idea, a Facebook it, it was, post? Well, <laughs> kind of, a little bit like that, more, more a, a disputation among uh-huh. scholars. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was um, delineating uh, a number of uh, concerns, especially around the sale of indulgences, mm-hmm. this idea that um, the Pope had this ability to grant full forgiveness for sins with certain strings attached, um, mm-hmm. offering full forgiveness for various uh, um, things being met. And so, for instance, one of the one of the complaints in the ninety five theses was, well, look, if the Pope actually have this has this power to forgive everybody, why doesn't he do so? Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so there are these things that that start to you can kind of see really get under the uh, uh, the skin of the Roman Catholic Church, especially at the time of it was. Nobody did this, challenge the authority of the Pope, mm-hmm. uh, especially um, drawing on scripture and theology and tradition. Hmm. So it was, a, it was a protest. This is why they're called Protestants. Now, there's, there's a story about how Martin Luther came to this, this decisive moment that it actually was part of a longer journey mm-hmm. that he went through, including very famous visits to Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, another site that I think we've all been to are, is uh, is the site of the stairs yeah. uh, by what is it Saint John Saint John yeah Saint John's which is supposedly the church for the Roman See versus the Vatican right. versus the Vatican if I'm the not mistaken okay mm-hmm. and uh, and and watching and the experience that he had as he was going through that pilgrimage process was mm-hmm. at least one of the events that's talked about. What What's behind that? What 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 led up to the nailing of the theses to the oh. door? I think our scholars are willing to say that Luther was on a sojourn mm-hmm. in his own mind. It wasn't a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think he still had faith in the church when he nailed the 95 theses. Um, um, but when he went to Rome, I, I you know, he, he received 10,000 years off purgatory mm. for the trip down to Rome, mm. um, and he could give it to anybody. Mm. Uh, and he wanted to give it to his mom and dad, but they were still living. Mm. So he gave it to his grandparents. But when he, 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 he got there, um, he, he saw uh, emptiness. He saw frivolity, and, and that emptied his soul. Uh, Luther had a deep, guilty conscience. And when you do what your teachers tell you or your father confessor, and it doesn't mm. work, mm-hmm. you become increasingly disillusioned. Mm. And of course, Stalpens gave him uh, his job at Wittenberg mm. as lecturer in Bible. And there he got into Romans and Galatians and the <coughs> Psalms. And uh, 
he found Psalm 22.1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm-hmm. Uh, as, but Luther has many turning points, mm-hmm. so how to put your finger on it. I, yeah. I would say it's gradual disillusion and gradual enlightenment mm. until Melanchthon, after the nailing of the 95, helped him to see clearly through the Book of Romans. Mm-hmm. That, it seems like Melanchthon uh, was the clincher, but mm-hmm. he was well yeah. on the way. I mean. There's a great, a great moment in uh, that Luther re- recalls as he is going through the the discipline of climbing those sacred steps, mm-hmm. gets to the top of those steps, and you know apparently receives the indulgence and turns around and looks down the steps at all of these people climbing up and saying the prescribed prayers, and this thought goes through his head: How do we know that any of this is true? Mm-hmm. And so you have this constant nagging feeling that. Yeah. Uh, uh, one of authority, mm-hmm. right? Doctrinal authority, and uh, how do we know this is true? Yeah. Hmm. And uh, you mentioned a name that's important that uh, I hadn't necessarily anticipated mentioning, but now it's been brought up as worth mentioning. Melanchthon is obviously a very important and perhaps even underappreciated figure in the Reformation. Is that is that fair to oh, say? I, mm-hmm. I would think uh, there are difficulties with Melanchthon. Um, he, uh, Luther was a prophet type, uh, opinionated, black and white type. Good at tearing things down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but not as good at erecting a yeah. foundation thereupon. Mm. Uh, Melanchthon was that man. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was an educated PhD at Ingolstadt University. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was a wise conciliator. Mm-hmm. He made wise decisions that I don't think Luther's personality was capable of. Mm-hmm. So y- you need a you need a bull in the china shop to upset things, but you need someone to come along to put things in their proper place. Mm-hmm. And of course, Luther said, you know, you know, Luther, he said that uh, the book of James should be cast from the canon, mm-hmm. and Melanchthon's Loki should be placed in its place. <laughs> uh, so we'll leave that. Yeah, debate. right. And we're talking, alluding to the Loki communists, of course, which is the systematic theology that Melanchthon yeah. penned. And yeah, was so, Melanchthon was much more the systematizer, mm-hmm. much more the the constructing the the, the theology. Where Luther was, uh, he was a preacher. He was a, a dogmatist, a pamphle- he pamphleteer. Saw, he, mm-hmm. he he saw. Yep. Clearly, mm-hmm. black and white, didn't. even mm-hmm. when it wasn't. Yeah, and, and we joked earlier about Facebook, but in very mm. many ways, Luther was a, a consummate communicator of the position that he represented and knew how to yeah. knew how to how to put it in the public square. And, and it and it helped that a hundred years earlier, you had the or uh, less than 100 years earlier, about 50 or so years earlier, the invention of the printing press. Mm -hmm. Literacy rate is rising, the printing press. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when Luther nailed the 95, he was an Augustinian hermetic Mm -hmm. priest, a very rigid right-wing type. Mm -hmm. Um, And he uh, he was calling for a debate. He wanted the issues on the table. Mm -hmm. And he got them. I mean, I think he lost all three of his debates. But he always picks up friends. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's very enchanting. And then uh, we believe that he wrote a, a pamphlet of some kind about every two weeks of his life. Mm-hmm. So he was committed to casting the idea out, mm-hmm. even though it wasn't polished. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was his theory. And, and he delivered it in a form and in a way that more than uh, – well, well, that certain, certain important people certainly could get their hands around, but more than that could get yes. their hands mm-hmm. around. Yeah. Um, and his I, followers and his students and everybody, they're, they're taking his things and, and – 
spreading it far and wide. Yeah. So they're they're helping. I mean, to if you ever this. do a tour of any of the sites that are related to Luther, where these things are on display, you can see how mm-hmm. how they're very different than the things we think about as you know, kind of full books and that kind yeah, of right. thing. It's very much not that. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, that that's kind of Luther and Melanchthon. Let's let's come to the to the Swiss Reformation and Zwingli. Um, uh, how, how, does he, how does he come into the mix? And then eventually we're working our way, of course, to the famous meeting in Marburg. So, well, you know, both are German-speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're not alike in many ways. Um, Zwingli is a trained humanist, mm-hmm. Vienna. Uh, he has two pastorates before the Munster. Uh, but we believe that his his intersection with the Reformation came largely from Erasmus's Greek New Testament hmm. and from the early writings of Luther. Hmm. So he he's being exposed um, to these teachings, and and his last pastorate was in Eisendown, a little town just not far from Zurich, where there was a pilgrimage center to the Black Virgin. Hmm. Uh, which is still in that church, and uh, he began to criticize that. Mm. Uh, so he 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 chafes, mm. um, and the city, the city of Zurich took him. Uh, I mean, he had a strike against him. He had a he had a benefit. The great benefit was he's a tremendous orator. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Strike against him, he was known for his uh, promiscuousness. Mm. Uh, the city took him <laughs> for his preaching, mm. but they didn't know that he had come to Reformation ideas. Mm. So they got a man that they didn't know they had. Um, so, um, so we're we're so Zwingli is this person who the city got that they didn't know what he, what he believed. But it's a difficult. I mean, it's not. I think Luther criticized Zwingli because Luther basically took the position that if you're right, it doesn't matter. You just say it. Yeah, I think Zwingli was much more of a politician. I yeah. guess he kind of – I think you, you see his relationship, for instance, to the, the, city, the city council, the fathers, was much more of a, a, a negotiation with regard to Reformation. And, and it really kind of dissatisfied Zwingli's students who wanted to take things a little more – more rapidly, yes. Now, there's another name that came in the mix as you were uh, talking about Zwingli that probably also should be put out on the table so people know where kind of he fits in this almost chess match that we're, mm-hmm. we're describing here, and that is the name Erasmus, who obviously is a if you study the history of this period is a is a dominant figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, where does Erasmus fit in all this conversation? Well, I think Erasmus agreed with Luther in many many ways. Uh, as to the reform of the church, uh, educationally, uh, recovery of the Bible, recovery of a more literal mm. approach to reading the Bible. M- morals, some of the corruption yeah. there, he agreed. Um, yeah. Luther's criticism of Erasmus is that while his work was good, he didn't reach the heart of the issue, hmm. which was the nature of sin and the nature of human ability. Hmm. So he scores him on that in bondage of the will. Hmm. Um, but without Erasmus, I'm sure there would have been another. But without the giant that he was, um, I'm not so sure, humanly speaking, we'd have a Reformation. Interesting. So Erasmus protect, produced an environment and a protect, kind of protection for Luther that wouldn't have existed otherwise and that yeah. set, set loose the, the uh, trajectory that ended up ending there, up in the Re- Reformation. You, you can find in Spain, for instance, that uh, – uh, 
translations of the Bible were made by Roman prominent Roman Catholic bishops and priests, but they never made it to publication. Hmm. Uh, but when Erasmus, he's such an international figure. Mm -hmm. I mean, faculties would have him would hire him full time for his name, mm -hmm. not for his appearance. Yeah, he was a magic, mm -hmm. um, and Luther recognized that mm. for his genius. Uh, but he thought he just missed the point. Hmm. Interesting. And Erasmus, of course, known primarily f at this time for his published translate uh, Greek Testament. So mm -hmm. it was. Uh, yeah. This is what Luther was using in his translation. So he was of the, the consummate German Bible. scholastic. Erasmus yeah. yes. was. Yeah. Um, and in the end, did Erasmus come out? For the Reformation no. or against the Reformation? Uh, when the bottom line was drawn, he conceded his conscience. Hmm. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Well, let's get to let's get to Marburg now, uh, and I, I want to leave space for Calvin in this. So, um, what happened at Marburg, and why is Marburg so important to this to the history of what happened with the Reformation? Yeah, the Mar Marburg Colloquy was an attempt in the city of Marburg um, at the Prince's Palace to to get some of the leaders of the Reformation, the Swiss Reformation, as well as the German. And how far down the names. road are we from from, uh, from uh, Wittenberg? A couple decades down the road. What year was the Marburg Colloquy? Yeah, so about years. 10, 12 years 12 later, years. Okay. and the the idea was if we can bring the Swiss and the German Reformations together, we can kind of uh, face the challenges of the, the Roman Catholic Church uh, more unified, and they were not able to pull it together. Came close, but there was a decisive issue that separated Luther and Zwingli in particular. This is always unbelievable to me. This yeah. one issue is? It's the Lord's table. Well, it's, it's the manner of the presence of the Lord in his table. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think when you see what is ultimately a minor issue uh, in the world of greater issues, then you basically know that it's not the issue. Mm. Uh, I, think it, I think the real issue is the obstinacy of Luther and uh, the intransience of Zwingli, who mutually just despised each other. Hmm. Um, one's German, uh, one's Swiss, one's more conciliatory and patient, the other's not. And so you have these, like in life, you have these Two very opposite personalities, yeah. yeah. Deeply so. And then you have, um, you have Martin Bützer mm -hmm. of Strasbourg, who, who understands that we have a tremendous potential here mm -hmm. of unifying the Reformation. Uh, we have already had the first diet that granted uh, spire, that granted freedom to the Lutherans, but it was revoked three years later. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we know there's cataclysm coming. Um, how, how do we survive? And so Butzer is your grand biblical ecumenist in the best way. Mm. And he orchestrates bringing these minds together, uh, both reluctantly, really. And I think they were really shocked when they agreed so much until the last point. So mm. the issue I don't think is the last point simply because later Lutherans don't, did not all agree on the extremity of his view. Interesting. Um, Melanchthon surely did not. Um, they go for a spiritual presence view. Okay, let's talk a little bit about what the actual issue is that is supposed to have been the sticking point. Uh, well, it's literally the phrase, what does it mean when the Holy Scriptures say, this is my body? Mm -hmm. And for, Cal for Luther, it meant that our Lord was uh, not that the elements, the wine and the bread, were transformed in a miracle. It's that Christ was truly 
literally, corporally, in the midst of this. Yeah, I call it the over, under, around, and through <laughs> yeah, view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, in other words, yeah. there is a real physical the, presence of yeah. Christ in the elements in some sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So it's a sacrament in the classic mm-hmm. sense of that word. Yeah, it isn't quite. It isn't Roman Catholic transubstantiation, but it is. It is very close to this. Mm-hmm. And and Zwingli was much more. You know, he's been characterized more as a as a rationalist. He clearly is taking that language more figuratively. And mm-hmm. and he's he's struggling with. He doesn't want to lose a central place of the Lord's Supper. But also, this isn't really – you're not really eating the, the body, body and blood, and blood of, Christ. of Christ. And yeah. this becomes yeah. uh, a major point. And of course, the, the probably one of the more – besides the nailing of the 95, uh, 95 Theses mm-hmm. on the door, the second iconic moment, uh, or besides maybe here I stand, I can do no other in the Reformation, is this supposed Response of Luther to mm. this in this debate, in which he carves out the words of the text on a table, yeah. and, and if I can paraphrase a, a modern debate, it all depends on what the meaning, the meaning of is, is is exactly. <laughs> this is my body. Yeah. yeah. So he took. He said, "This is my body. The words of Christ are to stand, and we take this literally." Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they couldn't agree, and so the. The uh, unity I, I, never didn't happen. It would be better to say they wouldn't agree. They wouldn't mm-hmm. agree, and the and unification didn't take place of the Reformation. No. Right, and part of the disagreement, which is overcome later mm-hmm. by some of the the mm-hmm. both men's followers, mm-hmm. is that there there is actually room for diff, uh, there is a some shades of some space created for space for, for allowable diversity on this issue. It's sort of it's not that they necessarily all come up with the same view, no. but they say, look, we can we can this hold isn't different worth perspective. Fighting over. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, we can be united within this diversity. Is certainly more uh, spectrum oriented mm-hmm. than even the Reformed tradition. Mm-hmm. On that issue, interesting. Um, and when we mention Geneva, of course, we are moving towards mentioning the name that probably most people, perhaps besides Martin Luther, that uh, most people are familiar with, John Calvin. Now, where does he fit in this uh, in this portrait of the emergence of the Reformation? Yeah, you know, we we mentioned in the last segment that uh, you had a ton of competing voices and people kind of fighting, and, and in many historians' estimation, uh, had it been left at that, the Reformation would have spun into uh, thousands of sects right away, mm. uh, all with their, like you mentioned, national, social, theological agendas. Um, and in, in some people's minds, in a sense, Calvin is a, quote, savior of the Reformation, and I mm. think primarily through uh, the writing publication of his institutes which ingeniously they began publishing, translating and publishing in several different languages, mm. you begin to have this international multi-language uh, in English, French, German, Latin, obviously, uh, reformed or reformation theology. Maybe not that they, everybody was agreeing with it in whole, but there was a common point of departure, a common – held the thing together a little bit more cohesively so you could speak in terms of, of an international reformed theology. Yeah. Right. 
Mm. And I think that's one of his main contributions. Now, why was the was it the multilingual nature of this that made it circulate so widely? Say in contrast to the Loki's, or or what? Besides that, though, it was just the nature of the writing itself. I mean, if you read, and I would encourage people to read through Calvin's Institutes, mm-hmm. it is simultaneously devotional. Mm-hmm. It is practical. It is deep theology he's quoting scripture church fathers it's a play you can teach theology from it mm-hmm. it has so many uses hmm. that it in it and it is systematic and thorough so it, the depth and yeah. the breadth in its, in its context what it is is an apology mm-hmm. uh, to uh, Francis the first of France mm-hmm. that they should not be treating this movement the way yeah. they seem to be treating we're it. Christian that mm-hmm. was kind yeah. of the and so it, it's really it's not a systematic theology it doesn't cover all the branches of theology um, it it begins with a political statement it ends with a political statement hmm. um, it, it is an attempt to um, systematize organize what I would call historical and biblical theology not so much systematics, because it, it, it's an it's an issue uh, in a context, uh, and the context is the middle of the 16th century, mm. roughly. Mm. And in a sense, it's a it's an exposition of the of the of the yeah. creed of the Apostles' Creed. Mm. So it's, yeah, I, it's I think it has an enduring quality because uh, Calvin writes so well. Mm. He, he's you know he's a humanist in the sense that. Uh, he believes that ideas need to be put forth, but they need to be put forth beautifully. Mm. So the literary cadence of it, I think, accounts not only for its content, but it accounts for the duration, the, the durativeness <clears throat> of that work. Interesting. Well, let's let's turn a little bit to the themes of Reformation. I mean, actually, in two minds as to how to handle this, whether to talk about the themes and just list them, or to do it through perhaps the most famous way that the Reformation gets talked about, which is through the the solas, you know, the sola scriptura, et cetera. So um, I, I remember when I took my history course at the University of Texas and we went through the Reformation, that the two things that were put forward or two of the more prominent things that were put forward were the idea of well maybe there were three one was one was and this goes with the priesthood of the believers idea the idea of the priesthood of the believers which means that the the religious experience for the person in the church is for everybody that there's no other mediator other than than Christ mm-hmm. uh, for the benefits and and that besides the priesthood of the believers the way in which uh, scripture was elevated uh, by Protestants in in contrast to the role of tradition. But tradition, if you read the Reformers, they're mm. still citing a lot of they are, historical yep. uh, material uh, that goes outside of the Scripture. And then uh, the third one is what I can only characterize as kind of the popularization of the faith, the, the idea that this faith, because of the priesthood of the believers, because of the role Scripture is to play in faith, and of course the emphasis on grace versus grace and works is another part of this. Um, was uh, was it, it 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 distributed the faith and made the faith relevant potentially to more people mm. on the and put them on the same plane. Fair, I think so. I think I think when you look at what we call the five solas, uh, they really are a statement. Of, you know, the Reformation was a recovery. The reformers believed that what they were involved in was the recovery of. Uh, 
a biblical gospel that had been encrusted with tradition and error over this over at least the immediate centuries mm-hmm. um, that's one side of it but really it, it's a massive cultural reformation mm-hmm. that reaches down I- into life mm-hmm. so it's huge mm-hmm. I mean it, and the very fact that it's lasted uh, up to five centuries mm-hmm. which I think now is uh, waning mm-hmm. uh, the worldview is but gone mm-hmm. um, but that's an enormous testimony to the power of their ideas mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's go through the solas. Um, I don't know if I can do this from memory or not. The first one, sola, sola scriptura. scriptura. We can get that one. That one's easy. Yeah. Uh, so uh, scripture alone. Let's talk about that in light of the way that's perhaps perceived mm. versus the way it was actually practiced, which is uh, yeah. strikes me as not being quite the same thing. Uh, yeah. It, popularly understood in, in many evangelical circles, it means the Bible alone is our only source of truth, our Bible alone is our only source of uh, spiritual truth, our only authority. And all. It, it had a specific historical context, and it really was answering the question, uh, what is uh, the the norming norm which cannot be normed? That was really the question it was answering. What so what's is the, the standard the of the final faith? authority on all matters of faith? faith? And so uh, this was in a context yeah. where where you had papal authority mm-hmm. competing with conciliar authority, the, the, the doctrinal and practical authority of church councils. Uh, of course, there were mystics and others who were appealing to personal revelation or personal authority. Or is it Scripture alone, which is the final authority in all matters of faith? And sola scriptura is a, I take a Latin phrase that's yep. translated as Scripture alone, okay. and and yep. it is really a matter of authority. It's not that the reformers were denying uh, helpful insights and in, in relative authority to the church fathers or to councils, etc. They're citing them like crazy. They're citing them, yeah. and they are saying we agree with these. Some of the early Protestant confessions clearly say we agree with the with the first four ecumenical councils. I, I would say that it. When we use the word the Bible only, mm-hmm. I think what they really meant, because of the other three that follow it, is as it relates to the issue of divine redemption. Hmm. That that uh, this book explains what no other sources do. Mm-hmm. It relates and to the sufficiency of Scripture. Yeah, the, yeah. the sufficiency of Scripture and the wonder of divine forgiveness. Mm-hmm. You, you can read it. You can trust it. Mm-hmm. And that's in a context of uh, contrary voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly Holcott and Beale uh, taught a practical Pelagianism. Mm-hmm. So, the, so the, the pushback is against a variety of other things that are going, going mm-hmm. on in the – I'll use a phrase – incrustation mm-hmm. of other things that are seen to be elevated to a point where the doctrine of redemption is becoming obscured. In particular, the the authority of the papacy and the magisterium mm-hmm. as the sole authority that can interpret Scripture. Ultimately, if you hold to sola scriptura, the only uh, author- final authority or or inspired interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. Mm-hmm. So you have this, you read Scripture in light of Scripture, it becomes its own interpreter. Um, whether that works out really well or not in the in the unfolding of the history of biblical interpretation is another question. Okay, okay. So that's sola scriptura. Uh, I'm not sure if there's an, a particular order to these or not. Um, uh, let's go next to uh, sola fides. 
which I think is uh, another important one. Yeah. Um, faith alone, by faith, faith alone. By faith alone. And I, I'm telling you, this walks us into the faith and works debate to some degree. Um, and and, and uh, so where does where does that where does that place us? In other words, what's the backdrop for that expression? Yeah, the question is: Is it faith alone, or is it faith plus mm-hmm. something else? Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned faith plus works, mm-hmm. uh, faith plus sacraments, or also how is this faith uh, working itself out? Um, you know, you can in the Latin phrase by by grace are you saved through faith. That text could be understood as by grace are you saved through faith, my belief, or mm-hmm. through the faith. Mm-hmm. And they would interpret that as the Roman Catholic faith, right? Mm-hmm. So is it f- by grace through the distributed to you through the, the church and its sacraments? And the way this was understood was, no, it's by uh, belief and faith and trust in Christ and the gospel alone. Mm-hmm. Faith is the, is the sole means by which this uh, redemption comes to you. And, and and the important thing here, and I actually think we've never left this discussion in some ways, mm-hmm. because um, the whole issue of how faith works and how much of faith goes back to God and how mm-hmm. much is a function of grace, how much are the fruits of the Spirit a work mm-hmm. uh, in the in a in a um, how I say this in a in an additional sense, or are they are they a part of the faith? Um, all those right. discussions are a part of this conversation, it seems to me, which we still we still have uh, within the Christian Church about about how this faith manifests itself, and what exactly are we talking about when we say faith? Yeah, alone. I think Daryl um, clearly faith is not a sacrament. Mm-hmm. Faith does not earn the product that it provides. That's the major issue. So, if, if these five solas deal with the contextual question of the nature of human redemption, mm-hmm. and the Bible only gives us the, valid- the criteria of knowledge, uh, it would seem to me that faith alone uh, is the subjective criteria, and that is, uh, one must embrace this object, mm-hmm. this saving object. Um, Simply, I've always sort of stumbled over faith alone. I think that's a a weak way in a way. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the intent is to put the human factor into it. Right. But the fact is you can't can't choose an object that is infinitely unknown to you Mm -hmm. unless that infinite object is revealed to you. Mm -hmm. So that faith doesn't make the object. Faith embraces the object that's already revealed. Yeah. So the, all of these solos have to be understood working together. Yeah, they have you know, to, so scripture yeah. alone, by grace alone, mm-hmm. through faith alone, in Christ alone. Mm-hmm. And those really need to be understood together, mm-hmm. especially to the glory With of God, God alone. alone. Yes. So it, it does tell a story in right. a sense. Um, right. And really, you can't really understand one of them without the well, rest. Well, the hard part of this, it seems to me, is what we're talking about when we talk about the exercise of faith or the presence of faith, and you can you can view it as a, as a human exercise on the one hand, and it certainly is descriptive of the human subjective response, but you're also talking about an enablement, the mm-hmm. enablement to see, the enablement to grasp, uh, and when I read Romans, you know, and I get to a summary verse like Romans 1, 16, 17, you know, for I'm not a, a 
afraid of the, or ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of, of God. God yeah. That word power is really about enablement. It's really yeah, telling a story right. about God has enabled me to do something that me, I, as a mere human, Can't am not do. capable of doing. Which goes back to, to – We would say the reason uh, – I, I think most of us would not debate the freedom of the will. Right. Uh, I mean, that, that is part of humanity. Mm -hmm. uh, the question is, what is the will Free to do. able to do? Mm -hmm. Right. Can it do what it does not know? Can it choose what is not available to itself? Mm -hmm. So uh, clearly, I mean, the passive voice of the Holy Scriptures would tell us that, that faith is a response to the revelation of the beauty of a dying Savior. Mm -hmm. And it grasps him. Mm -hmm. But how to express it, how finitude grasps infinitude, mm -hmm. uh, using the language of finitude, human language, mm -hmm. is just really impossible. Yeah, and the other part of this that is fascinating to me, we could probably do a whole podcast on just this one point easily, and that is um, when we think about the product that comes out of that faith that God commends, and that being called the fruit of the Spirit, mm -hmm. you can already see by that that God has not, uh, uh, how can I say, excused himself from the process no, no. Um, because he's wrapped up in it. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's a fruit that the Spirit of God <clears throat> Spirit within us possesses. Yeah. And then God, out of his grace, gives us um, affirmation. Mm -hmm. for we could have that. a wonderful uh, time just thinking about. That passage in Galatians, mm -hmm. because the scholars uh, relate to it differently, but it would seem to me that uh, that God is love, that Jesus is love revealed, and love purchased, and the Holy Spirit is the love of God through Christ granted to us. Mm -hmm. So, if if we do have the real life of God, then it would seem to me that we would also have the character of God. Mm -hmm. In finite form, mm -hmm. so sanctification and justification are not di dissected; mm -hmm. they're distinguished, but they're not separated. Yes, all who are being justified, so forth, end up getting sanctified and glorified. That's yeah, Romans that's right. eight. So, um, okay, well, we, we're wrap, I've got to watch the time. Got to be a good manager here. Um, let's go to uh, Sola Christus, um, mm -hmm. Christ alone. Uh, and I'm going to boil down this real quickly and say, no other mediator. Fair enough? Yeah. That he, he alone is the one that provides for us salvation. Faith doesn't make salvation. Christ makes mm -hmm. salvation. Mm -hmm. The gospel is about Christ, his mm -hmm. person, his yeah. work, his death and resurrection. He's the That's the gospel. cause of redemption. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the, the context for that remark is that means it's not coming through any other source put alongside Christ. So we're not dealing with yeah. priests who have to give it or something like that. Yeah, in the context of the Reformation, uh, it was taught people that Christ died a death that procured sufficiency of grace to save everyone. Mm -hmm. But uh, he gave it to no one. But he gave – it's a bank hanging right. in the clouds it's a, it's a, mm -hmm. with vast, the doors. And the yeah. church has been given the keys to dispense that grace. Mm -hmm. So it's a matter of obedience and control mm -hmm. through the sacramental system, compliance. And you get increments of that grace that Christ did purchase. Mm -hmm. And when you have enough, if it's not depleted by concupiscence, then you can trade it out for just final testimony. Now, there's a word I don't use every Con day. <laughs> I try to avoid that. I think I need special permission to use concupiscence. Yeah. Concupiscence is just 
Yeah. moral sense. Okay. Yeah. So so your point is is that in the in the Catholic Church this was this this what? Earning system? That, Would well, it be a way to describe Christ it? Christ has or? done it all. Uh-huh. Yeah. Christ has done it all. Mm-hmm. But he has not given it all. Okay. And he has given us help. He's given us assisting grace. Uh, we must take advantage of that to be rewarded with charity, which gives us merit, and we can cash it out. Okay, and, and in and contrast to that, then what's the Reformation doing? The Reformation is saying that Christ has purchased our redemption. In other words, the simple theological notion is, is the grace of God incrementally dispensed by the criteria of obedience, or is it totally, once for all, Imputed. So the hymn, the later hymn called "Jesus Paid It All" is pushing in the direction of making a Reformation kind of statement. That's right. Yeah, and, okay. and, and I like to go a little farther with that okay. with that hymn. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe, and He paid that too. Right, right. There is a sense in which, beginning to end, justification, the declaration of righteousness, yeah, sin and left a crimson stain. He made it white, white as snow. Exactly, glorification. Yeah. It's all accomplished for us we, by we, grace we through just, faith in Christ. Alone. We've been convinced that um, with reformers that if there's anything that we need to do to merit the merit of God, its very nature criteria is the character of God Himself, which is infinite. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we cannot. Mm-hmm. But the glory of the gospel, these men discovered, is that Jesus came and paid that debt for us. And he was capable of doing it. Being human, he could identify with us. Being divine, he could stand before God Mm -hmm. as the judge judged. Mm -hmm. So it's free. It's not free. It's very costly. Mm -hmm. But when we say free, we mean that it's it's free to us. And that was revolutionary Mm -hmm. to a people in darkness, Mm -hmm. uh, to be fair about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well beyond, I I even believe that the Roman Catholic Church improved their theology in the Reformation, Mm -hmm. but not enough, Mm -hmm. uh, from the Pelagianism Mm -hmm. to a semi-Augustinian or semi-Pelagian position. So they did move too, Mm -hmm. but we would say not enough. So we've said sola scripture alone, faith alone, Christ alone, What's left? We we, we did grace alone, grace alone, through faith alone. Okay, in Christ. So alone. we're down to the glory of God. Glory alone. of God alone. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no credit to be given mm-hmm. except to God. Mm-hmm. And the end for which we live our lives is to manifest appreciation. Okay. Now uh, this leaves the one category that I think the, is the other thing that often gets discussed as a result of the Reformation, and that is um, the priesthood of all believers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, obviously, in a in a church that was structured very hierarchically, in which some people held a lot of authority, this is the social revolutionary part of the Reformation yeah. in, in many ways. Yeah, um, and there's a couple dimensions to this. There's mm-hmm. the one that is. Um, the idea of ha- we, in our lingo uh, having a personal relationship with God, mm-hmm. and there is a sense in which I, I can pray to to God directly in the name of Jesus. I can have this real dynamic relationship. I don't need with an Christ. intercessor confessor. You know, that would have been called us. mysticism back right, then. Right, right. But to us, that's kind of normal yeah. parlance, right? right? There's the other dimension is I don't need to confess my sins to a priest and be absolved. That's this idea of yeah. he the being that that means yeah. of dispensing that grace. Right. Um, 
it, it, it isn't merely I confess my sins, to, but but in a sense too, we are each other's priests. It's mm-hmm. re- it's restoring this idea of the, the communion of saints, mm-hmm. and so we are confessing our sins to one another, and we are pre- speaking the gospel and, abso- and everyone to exercises each other their gifts beside the one another for one the another. benefit of the whole. So, is there, there, the priesthood of all believers has this horizontal, vertical as well as horizontal yeah. scope, and it really means that the simplest believer can mm-hmm. enter into the presence of God mm-hmm. um, because of the Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that was revolutionary mm-hmm. to a people who lived their life with the priest at the high altar with his back to you. Oftentimes, the, the, the only one partaking of the Lord's Supper was yeah. the yeah. priest. And if you think about that whole observance was meant to bring the body together, you can see where that so, can, has yeah. kind of fallen apart. In other words, uh, late medieval Catholicism drove a wedge between God and the people, mm-hmm. and and therefore insecurity, and uh, mm-hmm. just sad. Now, I have a question I'm going to ask, and there's no way we have time left to answer it, so I'm going to leave it hanging and we'll come back to this, okay. and that is, obviously, there's a, there are sociological things going on that make the priesthood of all believers, if I can say it this way, in some ways more possible to exercise in the body in some ways mm. because of what was happening in the opening up of of learning and knowledge and access to scripture etc yeah. that that made this possible whereas before it may have been even if you believed it it would have been a harder thing to achieve mm-hmm. if i can say it that way um, without preempting that yeah. conversation is is that one of the fat social factors that's at play here? Yeah, the rise in literacy to yes, some degree exactly. and, yeah. and, and availability word. of the um, printed word. Yeah. yeah, And I just think the gospel was so liberating for mm-hmm. people. Luther, Luther was on to something, hmm. yeah. and it still is. Yes. Well, it's been 500 years, uh, at least next October it will be. And we meet more frequently. Exactly right. Well, there, as often happens with the table, we've barely scratched the surface. I haven't been able to say that in a while, so I like saying it. And which means we rot- rotate around and come back to some more detail on some of this because these are lovely themes that we're talking about yes. that come out of the Scripture about God's grace and God's goodness and His kindness and what Christ has done. and the special place of Scripture and the glory of God. All these are wonderful themes. So we thank you for joining us on the table and hope you'll be back again with us. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast, two clergy of different traditions. Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.